Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Legal Brief. I'm Misty Maris, and I'm joined by my executive producer, Lauren Mincer-Clark. Wow, do we have some updates this week, and we wanted to make sure we do a roundup of some of the biggest yes today. We do. We have... There's... Two really big ones that we have to get to today. Ghislaine Maxwell, which we have been following here on The Legal Brief, but also a really big one that had updates as well today is the Britney Spears conservatorship. So I think that these are two huge ones that we want to get to. Uh, Let's first, let's get, Missy, let's get right into it. Let's go to Ghislaine Maxwell because um, just today her attorneys have asked for a new trial over those concerns of the jurors' revelations from the interview. You and I had talked about this. You knew that this was coming. We talked about this coming. It's now been filed. So take me through kind of what's going on now. Yeah, so we knew this was going to happen because the defense team had written a letter to the court right after one of the jurors came out, spoke to the media about his personal experience with sexual abuse. So this is only known as juror number 50. There's a there's a first and last name, but we don't know uh, the, the full name of the juror. We have not seen his actual records. We do not know exactly what he responded to on his juror survey. We don't have all of the public information available yet. What we do know mm-hmm. is juror number 50 came out, spoke to the media right after, talked about how in that jury room, he used his own personal experience as a sexual assault victim to convince other jurors to believe the women who testified in the Maxwell case. And according to his statement to the media, he said that other jurors were very skeptical of the witness and that he convinced them to believe them because he explained the way that he processed certain information and his own personal experience with sexual abuse. So it is a huge, huge, huge story because the question then becomes... What did the defense and prosecution know when this juror was going through what's called the voir dire process, meaning jury selection? So in this high-profile case, there was a mm-hmm. questionnaire. That that's the first step. And, and the court uses a jury questionnaire in order to get a fair and impartial jury. One of the mm-hmm. questions, very specific question, not in, – and look, on, on jury questionnaires, there can be – uh, more generalized questions. There could be very specific questions that might relate directly to some of the allegations in the case. But the question was, are you or has anybody in your family been a victim of sexual abuse? So when this information came out to the media, it was actually the prosecution that, that responded first and said, hey, judge, we need to look into this. Defense right. followed shortly after, wrote this letter that said, uh, this is going to be grounds for a mistrial. We're going to file our briefs. You know, the, the judge said file briefs gave these points that each side was supposed to include in their briefs and in their arguments. And now the defense has made that formal filing, basically saying that this conviction has to be reversed and there has to be a new trial because of this issue with the juror. So Here's what happens now. This is actually, um, it's an issue that has has cropped up in other cases that we're covering. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it is a serious issue because when you're talking about potential 
uh, prejudice based on this, what this in the broad umbrella, this would be jury misconduct, um, that this could actually put the verdict in peril. And one of the issues that's also cited by the defense, and now they're formally asking for a mistrial and mm-hmm. the judge is going to, um, what's going to happen next is the judge is going to have a hearing and dig into exactly Number one, what's in that sealed jury questionnaire? That's the first inquiry. What did juror number 50 say? Did juror number 50 answer that question truthfully right? Uh, and, and say yes, that he was a victim of sexual abuse? Number two, in, in accordance with that, this juror also said that he just blew through the questions. I think he used the word flew what? through it. Yes, yes. Flew through it. And, and that jury questionnaire has uh, the last page, big letters, you affirm that this is true right. under the penalty of perjury. So you can see how this is all going to play into the defense misconduct argument. So even if there is not an intentional uh, motive, an intentionally intentional act by this juror to lie on the juror mm-hmm. questionnaire, right? It could right. not necessarily rise to the level of, okay, I did not tell the truth on the questionnaire, by this juror's own statement, provided that that's what hap- what comes out in the courtroom, this juror's own statement is that he didn't really pay close attention to the questions. But yet he affirmed the truthfulness of those responses under the penalty of perjury. There's your misconduct argument, regardless of whether or not this was an intentional, uh, right. intentional lie or not. So that's all part of the inquiry. Um, and the prosecution, again, the prosecution said we got to look into this, too. The defense is saying this is grounds for a mistrial because if there is not a fair jury, then then there is not a fair trial. That this was right. prejudice from the start and, and the new trial is warranted. Right. So a couple of really important points here, though. Uh, number one, the first question is what what's on that juror questionnaire? And they're still under seal. Many are speculating, myself included, that the juror did not answer that question truthfully and, and answered no, because the judge asks questions during the voir dire. Right. Right. We've talked about that. You said they would have follow-up questions. And since this case relies on that particular action and uh, something like that, they would have, there would have been multiple follow-ups I would assume. Right. There is no way that, an affirmative answer to that question would not have resulted in follow-up questions from the judge about the ability for that juror, given their personal experiences, to remain. Yeah. Like, this wasn't a question like, did you ever steal a candy bar in the past? Like, this is something so specific to this case. Uh, It's just, uh, it reminds me a lot. Do you remember Scott Peterson, which uh, is something that I know that we'll also be talking about because that's coming back around. But that was brought up in his case because one of the jurors came out and said that she had filed a protection order against one of um, her exes, like ex-girlfriends, because of her protecting her unborn baby. And that was specifically because Lacey Peterson had gone missing and, you know, was found out when she was pregnant. So... This just reminds me exactly of that. It's so specific to the case. It's so important. Right. It's a very analogous issue. And there's a reason why the question is on the questionnaire. Right. It goes to the very allegations in the case and to the assessment of whether or not that particular juror could be impartial. So in Scott Peterson, the allegations regarding that juror is that she actually lied specifically for the purpose of getting on that jury. Mm, uh, ah. in this case, 
no one has gone so far to say that. And, and that's why I make that distinction. So they're saying about, this could be a mistake. Yeah. Okay. Right. What, what constitutes jury misconduct and jury misconduct is a mechanism to overturn a verdict and to get a new trial. So jury misconduct, though, isn't just limited to a juror who tells a lie on purpose. In this particular case, it could be this juror's failure by his own mm-hmm. words to read that questionnaire and ah. and to have responded untruthfully and then to affirm that response under the penalty of perjury. So what would happen next steps here is that this goes to a hearing and the judge actually has the opportunity to question this juror. So the, the, the heart of the issue is, okay, so does this rise to the level of jury misconduct? And the inquiry is going to faith is going to be focused on that juror questionnaire. What does it say? What came out during voir dire? The next inquiry is, all right, if there was juror misconduct and if the juror did answer this question truthfully, would the defense have had the opportunity to to strike that juror for prejudice? So that's mm-hmm. the next piece mm-hmm. of this. Those are the legal arguments that the judge had asked both sides to brief. Now, the last piece is, even if this, there is juror misconduct, the juror misconduct has to matter. Okay, mm-hmm. so... It, it okay. has to have been something that actually prejudiced the case. So there's a couple arguments here. The first is that that question, like you flagged, Lauren, goes to the heart of the issue. It goes to the allegations of sexual assault in this case. It's not a broad question like, have you ever been a victim of a crime? Which right. you'll see on jury questionnaires right. all the time. And it's a broad question, and you ask it all the time in a criminal case. But that doesn't have that significant specificity. You know, if you're if you're sitting right. on a murder trial, it it might not really matter if you've been the victim of a of a you know a robbery. If you're if you're the if you're sitting on a trial for a robbery a robbery, it might not be it might not matter if you've been a victim of a cyber right crime, right. So there's right be right different, yeah. There's going to be different uh, analysis depending on your response. But here it goes to the heart of the issue. So that that's part one. The defense is cited in their brief. Uh, in, in their submission to the court, that this juror said that he used his own personal experience to sway other jurors' opinions. Right. Well, Lauren, but here is the piece, okay? So here's a really important piece. There is a Supreme Court case, uh, and it is this, is, this is black and white law. It's, it's a stringent rule, and it's that the judge cannot ask jurors what happened during their deliberations. So she cannot inquire to this juror, to juror number 50 during the course of the of this hearing, she can't ask about the influence that he may have had over other jurors. But can I ask you, and that's even though he's actually admitted in, in an interview that he did. So Doesn't even matter. though he's kind of put that out there, you can't do any follow-up and ask any interesting. I didn't you know that. You can't thing about it. Oh. And you couldn't answer. Wow. Jurors are allowed to speak to the news or write about their experiences. They're allowed to talk to the media after the fact. But this is this is a Supreme Court case, highest law of the land. Mm -hmm. Any statements or testimony about the inner workings of deliberations in that jury room cannot be used in challenging a verdict or by a judge in deciding whether or not to overturn it. There is one exception. And the exception is if a juror was motivated by racial animus in voting to convict. That is the only time that deliberations can become relevant. Okay. 
the fact that he had made the statement to the media, while I'm sure the judge is aware of it, and the defense actually did raise it, is not going to be the primary argument for why or why not. Interesting. It's be overturned and it actually can't oh. be a line of inquiry. And, you know, there's a reason okay. there's a reason for it. And it's because the you know, the the protecting the jury process mm-hmm. and making sure that there's not um you know, a way of scrutinizing the ultimate decisions of the juror because reasonable minds can differ on outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and that is why you're not allowed to talk about what leads each juror to, to determine that somebody is guilty or, or acquitted or, or whatever. So that's why it's not a line of inquiry. Now, it doesn't mean that the defense case is doomed because they actually have a pretty darn good argument here if that juror was not truthful on the questionnaire. And I say that because that is still under seal. We're right. all pining that he's right. not truthful because of what happened during voir dire. And I, I'm, my guess is going to be that we're right, but um, hey, who knows? So Interesting. Yeah, yep. it's really all going to be about those detailed questionnaires uh, that the that the parties relied on the responses to those questionnaires to decide what jurors to exclude for reasons like bias. So mm. this is the question forty eight question forty eight on the questionnaire whether the potential juror had ever been a victim of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, or sexual assault, or even received unwanted sexual advantage advances, and if so whether that would affect their ability to serve fair and impartially in the trial. So you see what I mean? So that, that question, if you say no, you've never been a victim it of is very sexual specific, yeah. abuse, then how are you going to possibly answer truthfully whether or not that's going to affect you uh, in, in being impartial at the trial? So a lot really depends on the questions and how this happened. Now, the defense is going to argue because that statement that was made in the courtroom cannot be a line of inquiry, or excuse me, that statement that was made to the media about the juror's influence over other jurors is not going to be a line of inquiry for the judge. The defense is really going to focus on that fact mm. that they're, that they're, this is okay. very clearly right. prejudicial and there's bias. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to ask you about is because it, this came out earlier this week and this seems like a big deal <laughs> is that there was that, Gillian Maxwell is ending the fight to keep eight of the John Doe's secret. And now the court is going to decide whether those names are going to be unsealed. I feel like this is something that people had been tuning into this entire trial looking for names. So to now know, can you explain? Because this maybe happened now? Yeah, absolutely. So in the course of Ghislaine Maxwell's trial, as we know, there are documents from a defamation case brought by Virginia Gufrey. So remember, keep in mind, Virginia Gufrey. Why are all these names sounding so familiar? Because there's a huge web surrounding the Epstein, uh, anyone affiliated with Epstein in any way, right? Mm -hmm. So Virginia Gufrey had claimed Epstein sexually abused her when she was a minor and that uh, Ghislaine Maxwell had aided in the abuse. That was a case that was settled in 2017. Now, in connection to that case, a 2015 defamation case brought by Gouffre, there were a whole host of names that had been uh, redacted. Okay, and so these names were not were not in the public. 
These names mm-hmm. were under sealed. And, and of course, all of the information that came out during that civil lawsuit, right, and deposition mm-hmm. and all of that, all of the documents, all of the evidence, that's all very relevant to the investigation of Epstein. Because keep in mind, when all when we're looking at all of this and these names are being put under seal and certain information from those civil cases is, is public, certain information is not, Epstein's still alive for a lot of that. Because right, right. they're looking to prosecute him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's there's a whole host of issues that are going on during this time. So Ghislaine Maxwell had objected to the unsealing of those names. So she had been one of the people that objected to to keep and wanted to keep those names sealed. Now, mm-hmm. in the course of Virginia Gouffray's current lawsuit against Prince Andrew, um, she her lawyers are saying, okay, well, now... Maxwell's been convicted. There is no privacy concern over the names of these people. There's, there's no reason. Their interest in just being out of the media does, isn't enough to satisfy the requirements of the court to keep these names under seal and keep them out of the public eye. So now that everything's happened, the trial has happened, and you know Maxwell is sitting in this position where, all right, she, maybe she'll be getting a new trial. Um, whether or not the judge grants a new trial in the proceeding we were just talking about, we don't know right. whether or not this issue with the juror might, might not be successful there, but could be successful on appeal, much like we're seeing play out in Scott Peterson, right? Um, or whether or not the next step is she's getting sentenced, right? So that mm-hmm. if, if the conviction is not overturned at this stage, and even if she's going to appeal it, which she will, uh, if, if, <laughs> Right, if of course. If it's unsuccessful, she'll appeal it. That takes years and years and years. She's going to get sentenced. And if she gets sentenced, she's going to be facing a very long time in federal prison. So right. it seems as though now she has withdrawn her objections um, to the unsealing of the mm. She's saying, I don't really care. In fact, the quote is, all right, each of these people have their own have raised their own individual privacy concerns and the this says counsel for glane maxwell writes to inform the court that she does not wish to further address those objections so basically she's saying i don't care either way (laughs) you know Uh right i'm not in this fight anymore to keep these names sealed or to unseal them the court can decide all of these people all of these individuals can Mm -hmm. raise their own issues can raise their own arguments with respect to their privacy rights. And Maxwell is just leaving it to the court to review those individual uh, those individual applications and make a determination. Sounds like she doesn't care anymore. What? Now, so, I don't uh, know. Yeah. I, I does know this what, sound like a little bit like, I don't know. This feels, is this like uh, her way of being like. In keeping those names. Right. She, she had raised objections to unsealing those names previously. Now she's convicted. She's not. She's withdrawing the objection, so she's not she's not uh, fighting to keep them to keep them sealed. She's not fighting to keep the anonymity. Who right. knows, Lauren? My gut reaction was, and I said this before, that now that she is really facing, I mean, she is she's on the precipice of getting sentenced. None of us expected this issue with the juror right. to happen 
Oh, and right. it happened so quickly after the conviction. So nobody really knew or saw that coming. Now that all unfolded in one week. Otherwise, she's looking at getting sentenced. She's looking at facing a significant time in prison. You know, I had opined, and as well as others, that maybe this would be the time to talk and to talk about other people right. who also sat in the position of co or could be considered co-conspirators <clears throat> or could have engaged in criminal conduct. And provide information in exchange for leniency in sentencing. It happens all the time. Mm. Federal cases where where uh, prosecutors and investigators have a vested interest in identifying other people who are engaged in criminal activity. So perhaps this is step one in that mm-hmm. direction. Step one is to say, all right, well, you're not going to be providing information about these individuals if you're fighting to keep them anonymous. But once you're out of that fight, it's all fair game. Ah, uh-huh. Interesting. So, so who knows what will happen? So the, <laughs> right. the argument is that generalized aversion to embarrassment and negativity that may come from being associated with Epstein and Maxwell is not enough to warrant continued sealing of the information. And I would say that that is a, in general true, that the legal mm-hmm. standard requires more than just a than just the possibility of embarrassment. That's a pretty pretty standard, especially in, in the federal law. However, I don't know who these people are. So you right. and I can't sit here uh, and make a determination right. because each one may have some other argument, a specific argument to maintain their privacy rights that we wouldn't possibly know without knowing their identity. Well, I, people have been waiting a long time to see if there was going to be names. It was it was something that's been talked about throughout this entire process. And I think that up until this point, I mean, it, everyone kind of wrote it off like there was, you know, it was going down and she was going to not. But so with, there was a hint here that maybe we could, could be interesting. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, I had, I had thought that maybe when she was facing this, right. her criminal trial, that might have been the time. But look. She, maybe they were so confident, or she, you know, maybe they thought that they were so, you know, so confident then, and maybe now is like, oh, maybe we should right. throw a little maybe, bit out there but, now. Maybe if, even if she was offering up information, prosecutors weren't willing to say, mm. okay, we won't prosecute you. That could be because, look, if you're going to be, it, and I'm going to use it in the in the in the the extent of the most quintessential type of cases, and you see it a lot in cases involving drug trafficking and you see it a lot in cases involving organized crime of, of any mm-hmm. of any type of organized okay crime. in that all right in general um or any type of conspiracy case in general what prosecutors want is they want to get to the mastermind of the operation they want to get to the person who is responsible and is pulling the strings so when you're talking about lower level people that are involved you'll very often see non-prosecution agreements in exchange for their testimony against someone who is the mastermind galane maxwell we now know throughout the course of this trial how connected she was to Epstein and right. she is almost akin to the mastermind in this, in this, mm-hmm. in this criminal, look, it, it was a criminal conspiracy. 
she was a, a convicted of that. So there's the chance that prosecutors weren't really willing to deal with her on a level of a okay. prosecution agreement, especially maybe they would have been if Epstein was sitting in that chair. That might have uh-huh. been a different story. But now she's facing sentencing. And the question isn't, are you going to prosecute me or not? I've already been prosecuted and I've already been convicted. The question is, can I get some leniency on sentencing? Some. And maybe mm-hmm. there would be something that would be, especially since she has no criminal record. Um, right. That coupled okay. with a prosecutor's asking for a lower, lower on the spectrum sentence. Hey, maybe that's a more effective argument now. And maybe that's where this going. Or maybe we're just all speculating. And she just doesn't really care about this particular. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. At this point, it just goes like, oh, yeah, by the way, oh, that's coming up. I don't care. I don't I, Who knows? Well, it will be interesting how it plays out. Um, but one other thing that I wanted to get to and that we talked about is that we want to get to Britney Spears and this conservatorship because just today there's also updates in this case as well. This is a big deal because um, there was new court documents, you know, that were filed that alleged that Jamie Spears, who's her father and the former conservator over her, uh, that he's taken, you know, it, it's saying 36 million, but it's 6 million basically for himself and 30 million basically in attorney's fees. And so now there's a big argument over this among other things that are going on in this case. So Misty, can you kind of explain what's happening here? Yeah, so this case has had so much publicity. We know that the Free Britney movement, there were all of these Mm -hmm. documentaries. um, And she'd been subject to this conservatorship for 13 years. Right. Which, just starting from a basic premise, um, is seemed unusual to to the... To somebody looking in, I mean, you and I have talked a lot about this, and yeah, we've normally covered you would see a lot. Yeah, you that who, normally someone you would see under a conservatorship. So a conservatorship is generally saved for those people who truly do not have the capacity to care for themselves. They 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 cannot function in the everyday essentials of life. So they they can't feed themselves. You know, it, Typically, it's really, yeah, right. It's so severe, and a lot of people you see in these conservatorships are the most vulnerable people, the elderly uh, people with disabilities, uh, people that are in situations where it can be very easy to take advantage of them, but also where you truly see that they do not have the capacity to, 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 to function in life um, and that they do need assistance to do so. The reason why from just the outside perspective, forget everything we found out, after the fact that it seemed it didn't pass the smell test. So we say the right. smell test is just that something is not right. And mm-hmm. the reason that many people thought that is because even during this 13, this 13 years where when she was first in the conservatorship, there were some very public uh, situations that people yes. saw on camera. She shaved her head, you know, it, she, there, there were some very public things that came out that, led the public to believe that, okay, she needs help. But the question is, did she need to have basically all of her rights taken away right? over right. her person and over her finances for, for, for 13 years? And many people speculated that something doesn't really make sense because Hollywood, under- resi- I'm sorry. Yeah. The Las Vegas yeah. residency. She's working. 
wildly successful. <laughs> wildly <laughs> successful. Yeah, she's appearing on. She's appearing on a reality. She was on, what was it? X Factor. She's yes. She's a judge on the show. She's making an appearance on sitcoms like How I Met Your Mother. She's doing guest appearances. She's the residency in Las Vegas. I think if oh. you read about anybody, any any uh, musician who does a residency in Las Vegas, you'll see that they say it's one of the most exhausting. That and Broadway. It's like the most yes. exhausting because there's so many shows and it's it's constant. There's no off. There's no off time in that. None no whatsoever. You're working. Yes. So many people just speculated that just something didn't seem right about it. But for years and years and years, this goes on. So just so everybody has a just a basic understanding of the conservatorship, there's two different types. There's conservator of the person and conservator of the estate. And conservator of the person basically relates to every personal uh, issue in your life, like your ability to go places, your ability to maybe engage in relationships, uh, your ability to see certain people, uh, where you live, you know, all, mm-hmm. all of those types of issues. And then there's the, the, the conservatorship of the estate, which is financial, and it relates to management of money and management of your assets. And Brittany was subject to both. Um, and the interesting part about this case to me is that all of this goes on under the uh, eye of a court. And right. there's, there's courts that are specifically designated to handle these types of issues. And there is a vast amount of paperwork, uh, medical uh, observation, you know, uh, medical, medical, uh, they're called independent medical examinations, IMEs. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of things. There's, there's court investigators that are looking into situations. There's submissions that are required by the conservator. So there's a whole host of things that go on. And some of the other general principles that relate to this is that the conservator has a, a great deal of control over somebody's life. And as we know from what happened with Brittany, when she came out and talked about the control over her life, I mean, she was not allowed oh to go to Target. Right. Then, you know, it was kind of like what she was saying, if true. And, and again, this is there's two sides. And we have not read all of the court documents during that 13 year period to know what was right. really of course. happening. But, uh, but based on what she said, it yeah, is based on what she said that, that she, she really did not have those rights. And it seems strange because as we were just saying, conservatorship is one of the most extreme things that you can do because it re- it truly does take away the rights of an individual. And that's why it's really reserved for those who truly, truly, truly need it. And unfortunately, there's a lot of abuse in the conservator system. And one right. of the things that Britney Spears has brought to light is that, look, she's a public figure. She's wealthy. Uh, she's famous. And that she was subjected to this. Well, what 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 luck would anyone have <gasps> right? if they do not have that platform uh, to, to contest? If that could happen to her, right? Yeah. And so some of the things. So she, you have a court-appointed lawyer under the system. Um, and and you, as the conservatee, you're responsible for the fees on both sides. So you're making payments for attorneys that, that represent the estate, that represent the conservador, as well as your own interests. So you're financially responsible for everything. And that's why there's a lot of abuses in this system, because there's a financial component. Fast forward to today, right? So Britney Spears, conservatorship extinguished. She petitioned the court to have an independent attorney came in. She had a powerhouse attorney come in. Oh, and and he he has been coming in, swinging from the day he's walked. Yes. Yes. He said, 
this is crazy. And he, you know, lifted, he, he took the rock and he just flipped the rock and figured out what was going on underneath. Suddenly <sighs> he, Jamie Spears is stepping down. They're agreeing that she, the conservatorship should be ending. They're winding it down now. And not only uh, was that a goal for her, of course, mm-hmm. and right. conservatorship, but her lawyer had vowed that the people who are responsible for he did immediately said this Mm -hmm. right that that they were not going to go unpunished that he was it wasn't over just because the conservatorship uh was going to be wound down and that britney was going to be free so what happens now well lauren a (laughs) 250 page court filing uh this was right before a hearing on wednesday which has allegations of misconduct against Jamie Spears. I mean, there's 75 specific accusations of mismanagement and um, much of it relates to uh, basically lots of conflicts of interest uh, Mm -hmm. issues and a lot of financial malfeasance of essentially taking money from her, from, from what would be her state and putting it towards personal expenses that had nothing to do with the conservatorship. And just so everybody has a baseline knowledge of what would be proper and appropriate is that as a conservatee, yeah, the conservator, there would be certain uh, financial expenditures to the conservator that would be appropriate. That would make sense. Yep. It makes total sense. But the allegations here uh, are based on an accounting by a forensic accountant that was hired by Britney Spears camp that looked into it and basically says, uh-uh, uh, your cooking show, Jamie Spears, not really part of the estate. Uh, yeah. Some, These are some know, big allegations. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, legal fees relating to something completely just not associated with the conservatorship. So that's the accusation is significant financial malfeasance and that's what's in this 250 page document now so or, and 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 this, it's not just a it's not just a filing it's also documentary evidence associated with this um and and so the court the issue that was before the court on Wednesday was Jamie Spears is asking for Britney Spears to pay for legal fees. <laughs> right, right. So remember, before this conservatorship ended, there was a protracted legal battle where Jamie Spears was fighting ending the conservatorship. Right. Before her new lawyer came in, and I got to say, he went scorched earth. Yep. You yep. know, he did not mess around. So coming, yeah, guns blazing was guns ready. Blazing, and, and it's what we all were looking for and cheering for. And what she needed this whole time is what everyone was begging for to see. But yeah. and he he meant business. He's an independent and he's an advocate, and he's not part of the system. Mm-hmm. So he was coming in, um, fresh eyes, right? So he was yeah. coming in to really dig deep and look into look into what happened. And obviously, in this filing, it looks like. Uh, the accusations are really quite severe, um, you know, ranging from abuse to abuse, abuse of his role as conservator to financial misconduct uh, and conflicts of interest in the way that he managed both her uh, personal and financial resources. So this is really a big deal. 
Um, the, the actual hearing was about Jamie Spears asking for payment of legal fees, which, as we said, it's not unusual for the conservatee to be paying for all of those legal fees. And actually, in in this type of conservator conservatee relationship, that the conservatee's estate is where those payments come from. But what her lawyer is saying is, oh, no. This is not a normal situation. Mm-hmm. Look at all of this misconduct. She should not be paying one more dime. He should be responsible for that himself. He's made $6 million here. Well, that's, and that's what I was going to say. That's where that $6 million came. So they're saying, like, he has taken $6 million over the years. There's, he's agreed to $30 million in fees. Like, he is now all done and he's now on his own. It's kind of what they're saying. Yeah. And there's also this relationship yeah. between him and her manager that in 2008, oh. You know, he, so Brittany, Brittany goes into this uh, conservatorship so long ago. And shortly before that, apparently Jamie Spears received a loan of about, and people are saying it's at least $40,000 from this company, TriStar, a management company. Mm -hmm. And that then this, uh, then the conservatorship happens. Well, then he was guaranteeing the company a minimum of $500,000 in 2019, which is a huge increase from the amount it would have otherwise been entitled to. So it's, and then there's, there's an accusation of a relationship between Jamie Spears and Britney's and her manager. I mean, were they in cahoots? Right. That goes back to the conflict of interest, you know? So it's basically there, there are tons of expenses that are going to come out of this estate. She's a property owner. She was working. So her managers are probably entitled to, a certain portion. There's going to be a lot of people on her payroll, so that's, right. that's all true. The question is, what was what was valid and what was skimming off the top? What expenses had nothing to do with any of this and were improper? And Lauren, here's the crazy part. So this is all coming out in relation to this issue of attorney's fees, and the judge has actually said, "All right, I have to review this." We're going to have another hearing on the issue of attorney's fees and who's responsible for it. And something the judge could have done which uh, is what what Jamie Spears' attorneys requested, is to put the money that would go to attorney's fees in a trust account or in an escrow account and set it aside and say, this money- Until it's decided. We don't know where it really belongs. We don't know who's going to be responsible for it, but let's put it aside so these fees get paid. She didn't do that. So mm. I don't know if that's tipping her hand as to which way she's leaning. I mean- Interesting. Huge submission, mm. so we'll have to see. But uh, if- Whatever comes out of this, I mean, look, my question is, how did the financial misconduct not, how was that not flagged by the court throughout this entire process? Because the abuse of the person is a much more difficult situation because um, you're talking about what's happening in the privacy of someone's home, but the money, there should be a paper trail. There should be a paper trail for every dollar. So what happened there? I mean, was there a cover up to where these funds went? Was it where was it being? Where is it going? Right. How is that happening? How is that possible? So uh, I'm really interested to see this the way this plays out. And if we're talking about actual fraud or. Well, that's I was. This is exactly what I was going to ask you is because if we find could there be charges and other things that could come out like if when they're unearthing all of these things and you find out that there was fraud or cover-ups or any of that, what could happen? Well, that's criminal conduct. Uh-huh. So uh, I would my I would guess that uh, Jay, or Brittany's attorney has probably, and we know that he's rung the bell mm-hmm. and making these accusations. So my guess is that he's saying investigate to 
law enforcement and who knows what gets turned up. So that's, you know, what, what something I thought was interesting is that Jamie Spears camp has said, make all of the records from the past 13 years public. And, and, and an attempt to say that he has not done anything wrong. Um, And, you know, her Britney Spears attorney is saying, you can't make it public. That that's her personal, that's her private information. There's a privacy concern. So, my hmm. question is what's in there, but there's going to be a lot of scrutiny about everything that happened over these 13 years. And again, finances, this day and age, it is not easy to hide financial. Misconduct. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's because you're just following, follow the money and you usually find out what happens. It just takes somebody saying, ah, take a look at this. There's something wrong here. And the right. first step is this forensic accountant who goes through and says, all right, what the heck is going on? Start flagging. Right. The question is, were these, was, was this somehow approved by the court? Because then from that component that we're talking about, whether or not there could be criminal charges, if Jamie Spears was intentionally stealing from Britney Spears estate, yeah, there could be criminal charges. But what about the scenario where somehow, some way these were being approved by the court? Well, now that criminal argument really Ooh. doesn't have the same weight, right? Interesting. So, only time will tell. Well, and, and one other thing that I want, because it's not and related to Brittany, is that Jamie Lynn has her new book that's coming out, Things I Should Have Said, and she is now obviously doing her book tour, and she's been giving explosive interviews, which is also getting reactions from Britney Spears on social media. There is a ton of back and forth between them. I honestly, I think that Britney actually has posted while we've been, you know, while I've been talking, and it's, but we saw that. You know, there was this, she was going on Call Her Daddy, the podcast, wildly popular. There was going to be two parts. And part two was teasing, reading text messages. And I mean, I, I know everyone had been buzzing about it and what's on these. And so what we saw in, before part two came out, we saw a cease and desist come out saying that she should not be talking about her anymore. So I wanted to talk quickly just before we wrap up about that and kind of what that means and what, you know, where we're at there. Yeah, so we have Jamie Lynn. Uh, now the cease and desist letter came out. Jamie Lynn has been on a publicity tour, like you said, Lauren, really bringing out some salacious details from her book. Uh, you know, the the allegation really is that she's trying to sell books, right? That she's mm-hmm. exploiting her sister uh, in order to make money and in order to gain momentum and interest in this book. Britney Spears, obviously, people are very interested in her. Right. And that Jamie Lynn is essentially taking that relationship and taking these personal details from Britney Spears uh, and her interactions and monetizing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cease and desist letter makes all the arguments that cease and desist letters always make, right? These that, are very common. I mean, we see these common. pop up a lot. Okay, right. A lot. Um, and basically what a cease and desist letter is, we talk about it just, it's, it's, not, um, it's not like filing a complaint for damages. It's not like filing a case in criminal court. It's not like filing a case in civil court. It's basically a warning shot. It mm-hmm. says, if you continue to provide this information to the public, if you move forward with publishing the book, if you move forward with these interviews, whatever the, whatever it may be, if you move forward with providing this information, we will take legal action. And the legal action that's threatened is there's a broad category of any and all relief that could be granted in a court of law, right? It's the category. Right. But really the claim is defamation. Okay. And defamation is telling something that isn't true, uh, basically telling something that's false 
uh, to, to another person and it can be in writing or it can be verbal, it can be on TV, it's slander or libel. So it's telling something that isn't true to a third party. So obviously this would qualify under that general defamation or definition. Um, but the question is, is the information true? And the right. standard under the law, just so everybody knows, it's actually a little different standard. It's not whether or not it's true. It's whether it's substantially true. So mm. there's a little room in the law for different interpretations of situations. Got it. Right? So Right. Because two people might be involved in the very same interaction and have different interpretation of it. So the first standard is substantial truth. The second piece of a defamation case is that it differs from differs the standards to be successful in a defamation case differ if you are in the public eye as opposed to a a person that is just a a individual a private individual. If you're in the public eye, you have to prove uh, that there was actual malice. Uh, to the dissemination of false information or a reckless disregard for the mm. truth. So basically, you have to prove that the person who's putting this information out there is doing it for the soul, uh, for the intention of causing damage to that individual. So you have to be, or, or that you're acting so recklessly, you're disregarding information that's right in front of you, uh, you know, that's, that's very obvious, you're disregarding it. Right. And you're putting that information out there anyway. So it's actual malice or reckless disregard, and it varies state to state. So uh, the, the how much you have to prove in with each standard varies state to state. But it's a very, very difficult claim for anyone in the public eye. I was um, just going to say, for especially yeah. for a celebrity, it's just a higher standard. It's a higher bar, yeah, because yeah. you have to prove that somebody's doing it on purpose. I mean, look, if... The first question is, is it true? If it's not true, then you move on to the second inquiry. Can you prove actual malice? Um, and and sometimes when you have somebody who's out there for financial gain, who's telling blatant lies just to be salacious, sure, you might have a case. But it's just a very difficult bar to hit. And then the third part is, in order to be successful, the last component is damages. What damage did you suffer based on the particular lies that are told? And I think somebody like Britney Spears would have difficulty with that piece, too, because so much of her life is already in the public sphere. I see. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, what are, what are you going to look to to show that? that you suffered this damage. But a lot of times celebrities and, and I, and I get it and I actually handle these types of cases all the time. Um, many times when a defamation case is brought, you know, a lot of them aren't really looking for that payday. They're looking Mm. to protect reputational interests. Yes. Or they're looking to push back on claims that are false. So there's many times that you see defamation claims being brought for uh, for reasons other than other civil lawsuits where somebody's actually looking to, um, you know, have financial collect on damages and right, right, right. collect on damages. A lot of celebrities say, you know, I don't really care. It's the principle of the matter of just admitting this is not true, kind of thing, right? Well, remember even remember uh, Taylor Swift in in her lawsuit. Um, she, she said she didn't care about $1. She ended up donating the funds. She didn't care about it. She just wanted somebody to be held responsible for what had happened. And that was a different set of circumstances, but just you see that celebrities will sometimes push back on these situations, not for the purpose of actually recouping money, but for the purpose of, um, pushing back against falsities that might be out there. So that's what the cease and desist letter means. It's a very hard legal standard to actually achieve. And I think in this particular case, some of the tweets that have been coming up from Britney Spears seem more 
I don't know if they're actually, there were some that called Jamie a liar. That's true. Right. There are some that say that. But with some of these circumstances, it seems to be a little bit more like, don't air our family, our family trauma. We both right. went through a lot. Um, and, you know, you don't need to do that this, this way. So who knows? You would have to take every statement that she made. Right. And analyze it separate and apart from the other statement in order to well, determine truth. Because, and, well, and I just want to ask you, just out of curiosity, because you get the other side of this, and Jamie Lynn is talking about in these interviews, and her camp is ill say, I mean, she's getting death threats, and she's because of, you know, things and people wanting to protect. So she's getting fallout from some of the stuff because Britney's posting, uh, you know, all of these things. And so people are taking it. So I feel like it's causing a little bit of an issue that way. Right. So she's, she's saying that she's responding to some of the backlash that's come out of the Free Britney movement and her alleged place in this conservatorship and taking advantage of Britney Spears, which is a narrative that's out there in the public, right? Right. And then she's also saying that this book is an account of her experiences um, mm-hmm. and, and what happened from her perspective throughout this time with both her family and being Britney Spears' sister. So that's that's her argument. So there's definitely these two sides. Um, but am I shocked to see a cease and desist letter come out? No, because that right. is usually the first step. The standard across. The extent, <laughs> right. It's the first step. And to the extent that there's the possibility that more comes out, it could potentially be a deterrent to that. You know, what's out there is right. what's out there. Right. Is right. really going to sue Jamie Lynn for defamation? I think in the letter... Her lawyer even said, this comes with a heavy heart. We don't really want to do this. Right. We have to stop you from going, continuing on this media blitz in relation to all of this, what they're deeming to be untrue or what they're alleging is untrue, untrue information that's out there for the sole purpose of selling a book. So, yeah, there's definitely two sides to every story. The cease and desist, you know, that's. That is like mm-hmm. legal one one oh one in these types of situations. Yeah. You're obviously gonna you're gonna send it and then you hope on that end that it is a deterrent to any more potentially damaging information coming out. And maybe that will be, although it kinda seems like they're both still pretty active yeah. um on social media responding. Absolutely. To the next, whatever's yes. coming out that moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. So, and it will be interesting um, to see how that one plays out, along with all of the actual stuff that's going on in court with her father and the actual conservatorship that's, you know, still ongoing as well. We've got a lot. We've got a lot in this state. We've got a lot. We've got a lot to keep track of. Definitely a lot. (laughs) So, well, I think that that is it. I think that we've covered everything for the Ghislaine Maxwell updates and the Britney Spears updates for now. Thank you so much for breaking all of this down. This is a lot. And so I really love picking your brain. Oh, Lauren, anytime. And thank you all for listening. And we can't wait to bring you more in the legal brief. Thanks so much for listening, everyone.